Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn in your scriptures with me to Luke chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, um, there's many available on your phone. You can grab one there. Just don't make a detour through your email or anything like that for this morning. Um, Or we would love to give you a a copy of the scripture. There's copies of the scripture back at the auditorium um, table in the back. You are welcome to have one and take one if you do not have one. One of the things that we believe very passionately is that the word of God uh, instructs us into all things that are righteous and good and true. It helps us become uh, more sensitive to what God wants for us and from us. And so every week we open the scriptures. We believe that these are God's words for us, that they are God's teaching for our life. And so that is the perspective we come at the scripture from. And because of that, we read it. And so um, we are going to be um, looking at a story today. And it's a story that comes from the Gospel of Luke. Now, there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And many of us know the Christmas story. You, know, you have Mary, you have Joseph, you have the baby Jesus, and that comes in Luke chapter 2. And we'll get there in two weeks. But um, before we look at that story, we want to look today at the story before the story. We want to uh, read from this gospel, and gospel just simply means this. It means good news. Uh, And this is written likely, quite likely, by Luke. Uh, Luke was a doctor. He was a physician in the early first century. He he traveled with the Apostle Paul on a whole bunch of different missions um, and, and evangelism things throughout that world. And he writes for a specific reason. It tells us in Luke chapter one, verse three, it says, um, it seemed to me, <clears throat> since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you in, or, in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus. That's who he's writing to, a, a man named Theophilus. So that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. He's writing to someone and he wants him to know that what you have believed, you can bank on. He, he wants to go, and, and he says this in, in verse 2, uh, well, I'll read verse 1 and 2. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us. The story of Jesus is what he's talking about. Just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. He, he's going back to first-person accounts. He's wanting to know what happened. Tell me what happened when Jesus did this. Tell me what happened when this occurred. He wants to trace this back so that his hearers have certainty with the message he is about to proclaim. Now, what's interesting is that there's four Gospels, and each of them are different. And sometimes this causes some confusion as we study. We're like, how do we reconcile what's in Matthew, what's in Luke over here? One of the answers to that, and this this is helpful as we approach Gospel study. Um, One of the reasons that things are different is because each gospel is written to a different audience. For example, Matthew is written to a more Jewish audience. Luke is written to a more Gentile audience. Mark is different. John is different. You you actually, you come to John and it's night and day different and just in how it's it's there. And and it's like if we were to look at one of these trees up here, okay? Um, By the way, our team just did a fantastic job helping this place 
just feel like Christmas. So thank you, thank you, thank you to all those people who helped. But it's like, if we look at one of these trees up here, the way you're looking at it, and especially if you're on live stream, you're, you're however that works through all the, the waves and whatnot, you're looking at this in a distinct way. But how I'm looking at it is perhaps different because I'm closer to it right now. Each gospel writer is looking at the story of Jesus from a different kind of lens. And it's all under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So, so it's not an error, but they have a different frame. Um, Matthew, when he begins his gospel, he begins right into a genealogy about Jesus. You know, they call him Matthew's begats. You know, Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, Jacob, so on and so forth. What he's doing, because he's writing to a Jewish audience, is he's tracing the lineage of Jesus from the Jewish patriarch, Abraham. And that's where his story begins. In Mark, um, he begins with, hey, Jesus was born, and now he's being baptized. So in the first couple of verses, we essentially skip over 30 years of Jesus' life. All right? So, so Mark jumps right into there and right into what Jesus is doing in his ministry. We come to the book of John, and it begins like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, with, er, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. So John just says, hey, by the way, there was a time in eternity past. And so he takes the story of Jesus and he backs it up way over here. God created the world. Jesus created the world. He was with God in the beginning. And he comes down to verse 14. And he says, and the word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth. So he begins way back here. He fast forwards all the way here. And then he jumps into the ministry of Jesus. When it comes to Luke, now Luke is one of the classic examples. When we read the Christmas story, oftentimes we're reading Luke chapter 2. But it's interesting. When he starts this story, this orderly account of what happened in the life of Jesus, he starts with not Mary, not Joseph, not Jesus, but with two people named Zechariah and Elizabeth. And so this week and next week, we are going to look at Zechariah. In Hebrew, you'd say it Zechariah. So I'm sorry if I slip into that. Sometimes I say it in Hebrew-ish, and sometimes I don't. But Zechariah and Elizabeth. And he begins by telling a very, very compelling story of these two people. He doesn't tell it in brief form. He tells it in extended form. These are common folk. They come from priestly families. They're aged they're no longer able, able to have children. They don't have any children. But they're living out what it means to honor and to serve God amidst Roman oppression and a temple hierarchy that is in many ways absolutely corrupt. And in the midst of all of this, political, social, religious pressure, they're looked upon with disgrace by people, even in their community, because they do not have children. They seek to honor God, though, in the midst of this, and they seek to serve him faithfully. See, Zechariah and Elizabeth is a story of two people seeking to follow God amidst very challenging days, all while learning to trust God when life does not go as planned. Have you ever experienced life that did not go as planned? And how you're to walk faithfully in the midst of that. It's a story of being ready for God to use them in a way they never would have imagined. By giving birth miraculously, literally, to a child who would, whom would be empowered by God to prepare the way for the Messiah. So, 
With all that said, that's where we're going this week and next week, and then we'll jump into Luke chapter 2 in two weeks. Um, One of our customs here oftentimes is to stand for the reading of the scripture in in honor of it. So would you stand with me, please, if you're able to? We're going to read Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, going through verse 25. The gospel of, of Luke says this, in the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both were righteous according to all the commands and the requirements of the Lord, but they had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were well along in years. When his division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, it happened that he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and to burn incense. At the hour of incense, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and overcome with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will name him John. There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will never drink beer or wine. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before them in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. How can I know this? Zechariah asked the angel. I'm an old man. My wife is well along in years. Then the angel answered him, I'm Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. Now listen. You will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, amazed that he stayed so long in the sanctuary. When he did come out, he could not speak to them. Then they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He kept making signs to them, and he remained speechless. When the days of his ministry were completed, he went back home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and kept herself in seclusion for five months. She said, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. These are the very words of God. Let's pray. Our Father and our King, we thank you so much that we can read this orderly account. And God, that you can instruct us what it means to walk faithfully before you this day. Thank you, God, for meeting us here. Speak to us today through the revealed word of God and by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you for the big amen there. I love that. Um, So back to the first couple verses of our passage. Whenever we start into something like this, the details matter, okay? So we'll go into some of the details today. He begins this in verse 5, and he says, in the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division. Stop. Actually, we could have stopped it. In the days of King Herod, Luke understands in just communicating these few words that there's a whole cultural context going on. It would be as if I were to say, in the days of President Lincoln, 
right? You think of President Lincoln, you go, okay, we've got abolition of slavery. We've got all these things that mark President Lincoln's service and his time in the world and in the United States. When he says, in the days of King Herod of Judea, the first century reader goes, I know where we're at. I know what's going on. So here's a little bit what's going on. This detail helps us understand what context the story takes place in. Herod was an incredible, Herod the Great was an incredible builder. There are things that he built over 2,000 years ago that still stand today. About 11 years ago, I was standing in a fortress that he built called Masada. And to get to Masada, because it, it's, try, it, it's a very um, difficult to penetrate um, fortress. You have to take this path, then you walk up the zigzag path, and you come up to this, to this fortress, and up there, he's got a couple of different terraces of places where he could stay. There's a swimming pool up there. Your mind is just blown. You're like, how on earth did he get all that up here? Because it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Like, how did this happen? Herod the Great was an incredible builder. Um, Herod the Great was also a crazy person. To be honest, we find out from Matthew's gospel that when the Magi come to tell Herod the Great, hey, we're here to find this this king of the Jews, Herod feels threatened. He says, tell me where they are because he intends to go after them. And there's what's called the massacre of the innocents that Matthew's gospel records for us. Because, Because Herod, when the Magi didn't come back and he couldn't go out and single that one person, he says, I have to secure my throne at every cost. And so he sends his troops out. And in Herod is part Jewish and he's part Idumean, which is a territory that's south of Israel. He's not Roman. Romans are kind of over everybody in terms of ruling. But, but Herod has a good relationship with the Romans. They've given him this territory to manage. And in the process of this, he says, I have to secure my throne. And so um, he, he's, he's literally crazy. Uh, and he goes out and he massacres and numerous infants trying to keep the Messiah from coming. So the Jewish people, especially those Jewish people who were very observant, who wanted to honor God in the context and culture of their day, they were under great oppression, not just from the Romans, but also from Herod. And there's a whole bunch of different things going on in this mix, but but it's a time of national wondering, where are you, God? We don't understand, God, we are struggling here under this this threat of Rome, this imperial force under King Herod, who doesn't love you, who doesn't honor your ways, who may have rebuilt the temple, but that's really as much a political tool as anything else. And so in the midst of this, we're dropped into a story and we're introduced to Zechariah. We're told that he is a priest of Abijah's division. If you go, and you can do this later, to um, 1 Chronicles chapter 24, it gives a listing of the different divisions of priests. Uh, Abijah was one of these priests. Now, a priest is someone whose job it is to serve within the temple and its complex. They're there to help um, the people of Israel engage in worship to God. And so they would help with sacrifices. They would help with ritual washings. They would take care of the temple and all the things that went on. And there's 24 divisions of priests. And Abijah is one of those um, divisions listed in 1 Chronicles. Um, Zechariah comes from this division and he marries 
a daughter of another priest. It says um, here, he marries Elizabeth, and she was a daughter of Aaron. Now, Aaron was the high priest. You know, back in Exodus, when God's people came out of Egypt, you have Moses who leads them out. Aaron becomes the high priest, helping facilitate the worship of God. And, and so Elizabeth is from there. And so here you have two godly people from godly lineages, people who have sought to honor the Lord. And you have... Um, in, in the temple at this time, um, the priests would come, because there's 24 divisions, uh, the priests would come for the three annual festivals. There's two in the spring and one in the fall. And the priests would come and they'd help with all the various things. And then outside of that, you would have priests come and serve um, twice a year and about, I think it's about a week in increment. So you have, okay, Abijah's coming up, all the priests from this um, this descendant of Abijah coming up this week and coming up this week. So Zechariah finds himself in the temple um, serving at this time as a part of his duties of being a priest. And now it says uh, here um, that, that both were righteous in God's sight. They were living without blame according to all the commandments and the requirements of the Lord. Uh, uh, Zechariah, he, he is a faithful servant of God. His name, and names are very important in Jewish lineage. Um, his name means uh, whom Yahweh remembers. It comes from the word zakar, which means to remember. Zakari, Yah. Yah is part of the name of God. So, um, whom God remembers. And so, just imagine for a moment, you have this cultural context of Zechariah being born, Elizabeth being born, and their parents are naming their kids. And Zechariah's dad says, Let's name him Zechariah. God remembers. And in the midst of the oppression, in the midst of where are you, God, culturally, um, he is named with great hope. He is named with God will remember him. Imagine Zechariah's dad upon his birth calling him this name, believing that amidst the social and political unrest of the world, Yahweh remembers I love how Doug Greenwald says it. He says, the mention of Zachariah's name evokes prophetic echoes of the Messiah's coming, his priesthood, his kingship, his glory, and his enduring reign of peace and prosperity, which is what the Jewish people longed for. So not only was Zechariah from a priestly family, he marries into this other priestly family, Elizabeth. Elizabeth's name means one who swears by God. Um, Zechariah, he's an active priest. He, he is one, one scholar says, for whom um, the priesthood was a sincere calling. It was unencumbered by the aristocratic tendencies or obsessions that seemed to seize too many of his colleagues up in Jerusalem during the last days of the reign of Herod the Great. This writer says, he continues to say, he and Elizabeth, they're well along in years, but they're childless. And carried the public stigma that God had withheld his blessing in spite of their lifetime of faithful service. In such a time and place as this, the fault for barrenness, he writes, always adhered to the woman. But Zechariah, in the solid values of his rural upbringing, he refused to push Elizabeth aside for a more promising womb. And so the two lived together as the years slipped by, resigned to the fact that although their family line would end, Life could be dignified in full in the meantime. See, in the ancient period, uh, having a child was not just a carrying on of the line. That's a big part of it, especially in a priestly role. You're like, we want to have a, a son who will then become a priest, who, who will then continue to serve God in this context. 
in the first century, it's also part of the social safety net. All right, you, you, you would have your kids help in order to provide for you. So there's this deep longing just even outside of the longing to have children for these two. And when we read this, it doesn't phase us, I don't think, as much as it should in our context. But, but you read um, verse six, both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to the commandments and requirements of the Lord. And verse seven comes and it should hit us like a brick, but they had no children, all right? That's not a small detail. That's a, hang on a second, something is wrong with this picture. Here's a person named whom God remembers and, and one who swears by God, who come from godly lineages, and they don't have a kid. And we find out in verse 25 that there was disgrace, there was reproach that they felt because they did not have a child. Because at this time, it was like, mm, God is not blessing you. Now, it's not true, but at this time, that was part of the cultural idea of children. So Zechariah, you can imagine, prayed and prayed and prayed. Year after year, month after month, year after year, maybe day after day, month after month, year after year, he prayed, they prayed, God, would you grant us a child? And slowly, day by day by day, the possibility of that just evaporates. He had this lifelong prayer for a son, an heir, a child. In the midst of all that, he has prayers for the messianic redemption of Israel, for, for God, take all this brokenness around us, make it right again. And yet, in the midst of this, both prayers are unfulfilled. So Zechariah, how does he walk faithfully? Look, look with me, please. It says in verse 8, when his division was on duty, he is serving as a priest before God. And it happened that he was chosen by lot, which is a way that they would kind of randomize selection, uh, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and to burn incense. Twice a day, in the morning, one time in the morning, one time in the evening, there would be the incense offering that would go up. And it, and it, was, a, it was an offering um, that would have intercession of rising prayers to God, and the priest would go in on behalf of the people. Now, this was such an honor. And even though it happened once in the morning, once in the night, you would usually only have that opportunity once in your life as a priest to go there. Now, think for a moment. Think of the temple. Just think of it like a big, a, a big uh, rectangle courtyard. You have on the outside places where Gentiles can go. You have the court of the women. As you get into the temple proper itself or into the holy place and the most holy place, think of another rectangle. One side of it is the holy place. That's where the Ark of the Covenant dwells. All right, That's where the presence of God is thought to have dwelt and actually dwelt in the Old Testament time. Zechariah is going into there. And, and only priests can go into there. And actually only the high priest can go into the most holy place. And he can only go there one time a year. But where Zechariah is going is he's going not just the outer courts, not to the next courts, not, not into the next court. He's going basically right, like if I was standing here and the holy place, the most holy place is right here. He was going, because there's a curtain here and there's the Ark of the Covenant here. He is going like to about here. He, he is with touch distance of the Ark of the Covenant. Now it's behind a veil and all this kind of stuff, but he is going in there and he's, he's burning incense and offering prayers on behalf of the people. So as he goes in, th there's a crowd that has gathered around him 
There's a whole assembly, verse 10 says, of the people praying outside. And in the midst of him going in to light this incense, and then customarily, he would then go back out after he's finished praying, giving the incense. He'd go back out of there, and he'd pronounce a blessing upon the people. In the midst of all of this, um, an angel appears to him. All right? Just imagine, you're in there. You, you are really close to where the presence of God is believed to dwell. And this is a holy moment. Today, the closest that the Jewish people can get to the, 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 um, the holy place and the most holy place is what is known as the, uh, the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall or Kotel. And, and so it's, it's a very holy place in Judaism. If you go there, you have to wear a kippah. You have to um, be respectful of the various rules that are in place. But, but Jewish men and women go there and they're different places. They go and they offer prayers because they, they believe we are standing on holy ground. This is where the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, his presence dwelled. Zechariah is closer than that. And he's in there, he's giving his prayers and an angel appears. <laughs> and it says here um, that the angel Lord appeared to him standing right in front of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled. He was overcome with fear. But the angel says this to him. He says, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Now, I love it that the angel starts there. He doesn't just say, hey, I've come to tell you something. He says, hey, it's okay, you're not going to die right now. <laughs> you're going to be fine. Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. And when it says heard there, it means your prayer has been heard and responded to. There's going to be something that comes because you prayed and because it is in line with the will and the purposes of God, guess what's going to happen here? Now, I mentioned there's a couple things Zechariah is praying for. He's praying for the reconciliation of God's people. For, for the redemption of Israel amidst foreign oppression and other things. He, he's also had this lifelong prayer for a son. Now, I don't know if he had stopped praying for a son. I mean, the text tells us that he was old and, and well uh, developed in years. Basically, biologically, there was no possible way for him to have a kid. But I have to also think, Zachariah knows certain stories. Sarah, Rachel, Hannah, all these stories of women who were barren at one point in their lives, and yet their families ended up taking on um, children because of God's miraculous intervention and changed uh, a lot of the biblical path in history because it aligned with what God was wanting to do, not just for them, but for his people. So you have all these prayers, all these prayers. Zechariah is startled, but he says, don't be afraid. Here's what's going to happen. Your wife, Elizabeth, is going to bear you a son, and you are going to name him John. Now, now, names, I said, are very important. It's interesting here that the angel tells him, you are going to name him. We'll talk about that more a little bit next week. But um, you'll name him John. The angel is taking responsibility for what's going to happen here. And he says, here's going to be the response to John in verse 14. There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will never drink wine. Or beer, He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is going to be his character, his position. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. Here's his mission. He will turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him, meaning the Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous. He's, he's going to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. 
In other words, this is going to be a special kid. This is going to be a kid whom God has already indwelt with his spirit while he's still in his mother's womb, who is going to go before the Messiah as a forerunner, as a herald of saying, look at who is coming after me, the one who takes away the sins of the world. That's, that's what he says. Uh, later, as John grows up, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When he sees Jesus, he says that. Incredible stuff. That's John's role for the people. But in the midst of this national hope, God meets this personal desire of this righteous couple in God's sight who live without blame according to God's commandments and requirements. Zechariah, understandably, in verse 18, says, how can I know this? Because he's thinking, I'm old. <laughs> My wife, she's old too. He probably didn't say that if he's smart. <laughs> um, but, and because he was probably older, so she would have gone back, I'm not as old as you. <laughs> but he's like, I'm old. She's old too. How on earth is this going to go? Now remember, he's talking to an angel. And this angel says, <clears throat> My name's Gabriel. I'd like to introduce myself. I stand in the very presence of God. Okay, that's impressive. He says, I was sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. This is good news. And then verse 20, now listen, you will become silent. I love it. And unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled at their proper time. So in the midst of this, in the midst of his doubt, the angel doesn't go, boom, it's done. We're not, we're not touching this anymore. We're going on to someone else. He says, no, I want to teach you something, Zachariah. You're not going to be able to speak. And I thought about that for a little bit. I was doing some reading about that this week. One author said this, and this, I thought this was really compelling. He said, was God maybe giving Zechariah a bit of grace by forcing him to not be able to talk so that he could just hear. Because the angel gives this whole, don't be afraid. Here's what's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen. It's like Zachariah says, but wait, this isn't going to happen. And the angel's like, you're not listening to me. <laughs> let me close your mouth. And let me let you think about this for about nine months or so. And just think about your life. Think about my life. If we take away our phone, we take away our, our, our iPad, we take away our computer, because they didn't have those then, um, we take away even our ability to speak in conversations. And we just listen. What might we learn? You know, this is slightly off topic, but in the book of James, it says, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. There's something about our natural reflex, and we see this in our lives, we probably see this, well, I see this all around our world. I see this in my life too. Sometimes I'm so quick to speak, I'm not actually hearing what someone is saying. I might hear the words, but I don't hear the heart. I don't hear the intention. It's like the angel says, I, you, you're not gonna be able to speak for some time because I want you to listen. And just think about this nine plus months of just thinking writing on tablet, which is slower and less productive and all this kind of stuff, but thinking. And as he's doing that, this is a man, this is a priest who's been steeped in Jewish tradition. He knows the scriptures. And as he thinks about this promise and he thinks about the promises found in the Hebrew Bible of a Messiah that would come, he's going, wait a second. I can just imagine. He's going, wait a second. God promised this. What? 
you know, and all this is going on in his head. And for nine plus months, his head is turning. Going, I don't know how God's going to do this, but God's going to do this. And we come to that conclusion when we talk next week. We'll, we'll talk about that some more. So Gabriel says, listen, you won't be able to speak. <laughs> You'll be silent until the day these things take place. In other words, until you have a son in your hands. Because you didn't believe my words. Now, all this is happening in the temple. <laughs> He's still in the temple, all right? And meanwhile, verse 21 says, the people are waiting for Zechariah. They're amazed that he could stay so long in the sanctuary. But in verse 22, when he didn't come out, or when he did come out, he couldn't speak to them. And they're going, oh my word, oh my word, what's going on here? They realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary and he keeps making signs to them. It's like ancient uh, charades or something like that. And, and He's making these signs and he's speechless. And so there's been all this buildup of what took maybe, you know, a series of minutes. And then as quickly or as slowly as we build up, Luke says, when the days of his ministry were completed, he went back home. (laughs) You know, just turn and go. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and he kept herself in seclusion for for five months. Now, Elizabeth has a whole nother story. We'll look at that a little bit next week. Uh, but she says this in verse 25, the Lord has done this for me. And you can hear the personal anguish even in that statement or the personal gratitude in that statement. God, you've done this for me. I'm old. I'm beyond the years to bear, to bear children. And yet God, in your goodness and in your grace, in your sovereign plan that I would not have picked for myself, I can imagine her saying, You've looked upon me with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. Story. It's just an incredible story of how God intervenes in human life in a personal way, but also in a national way, in a corporate way to bring about Jesus. Zachariah. Zachariah's life I have this question in my notes. It just says this, how does he walk faithfully? A couple of observations. How does Zechariah walk faithfully? One is this. He prays. He prays. Day after day, month after month, year after year. Some of his prayers go unanswered for years. How many of you have ever experienced prayers that have gone unanswered for years? I have. And you pray, and you pray, and you pray, and you trust, and you trust, and you trust. And at the end of the day, you have no control over the outcome of that. But you pray. You pray faithfully in accordance with God's word. You take, he takes his hurt and his pain to God, probably frequently. All right? How does he walk faithfully? He prays. Number two, how does he walk faithfully? He chooses to honor God day by day. Now, we get a glimpse, we get a focus into this part of Zechariah's life. But we have no idea of the many times in which they waited hoping that they might be pregnant one month and it didn't occur. Nothing's mentioned. Nothing is mentioned of the tears and the pain that were shed over barrenness. Nothing is mentioned except for that last phrase of the degree of disgrace that this couple felt for years in their community because they couldn't have a child. Nothing is mentioned of the moments of frustration and probably losing his temper or losing his just, oh, personal self-control over the misunderstanding of his conduct in the community. 
Remember, the text says that they're righteous. But for the culture and the people at that time, they say, if you're really righteous, why has God not blessed you with a son, with a daughter? Now, that's not consistent with God's blessing. We know it's a part of God's plan for them. But culturally, people look down upon them. And they can't take that away very easily. Instead, how does he walk faithfully? Well, he chooses to honor God day by day. He chooses to pray. He chooses to love his wife and to stand with her because they're a team. He's all in. Says, no, not going to go try and find this need or this desire met somewhere else. I'm going to stay here and we're going to honor God together. He chooses in walking faithfully. He, he faithfully serves the people as a priest. He doesn't go for um, more money somewhere else. He, do, he, he doesn't go for some other place other than where he was called. He's faithful in what God said, I want you to do this. And he shows up and he serves. Even if he's not picked to offer the incense year after year after year after year, he says, I'm still going to serve and I'm going to serve faithfully. How does Zechariah walk faithfully? He receives grace. See, God had specific intentions for this godly couple's lives. They probably would have chosen a different path, but in the end, God always knows our needs. He knows what is best for us, and he knows how our lives fit in with his purposes. In the midst of all this, Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth, they walk faithfully according to what they know, the statutes and the commands of God, and they leave the rest to God. They leave the rest to God. So that's how Zechariah walks faithfully before God. What does it mean for us to walk faithfully before God? Our sermon series is titled Faithful Walking, Faithful God. We're going to talk about faithful God a little bit more next week. Faithful walking. What does it mean for you and I to walk faithfully before God? Well, it, it, comes, it begins with this. It begins with a relationship with Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2 says this. For you are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. Not from works so that no one can boast. See, one of the things that we experience in faithfully walking before God is that when we come into faith, a relationship by faith with Jesus, we receive God's grace. God's grace actually pursues us in this relationship. And when we respond to God's work by Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the dead, we experience new life in Jesus. And in the process of this, we do not ever save ourselves by being better, right? Whether you're a religious person or you're not, we never are saved by doing better. We are saved by God's grace. Amen for that. Because if we're saved by us doing better, we are hopelessly in trouble. Because <laughs> I, I know my life and I go, whoa, my temper lost there, my frustration here, all these ways in which my life does not measure up to what God wants. And yet God in his grace meets us. Wherever you are at, if you are here or if you are online, I want you to know this today. God loves you and God wants to walk with you. God wants to have a relationship with you through his son, Jesus. And it's only through Jesus you can have a relationship with God. So 
Ephesians 2, though, says we're saved by grace through faith. This is not from ourselves. This is God's gift, not from works that any, so that no one can boast. Zechariah and Elizabeth are not followers of God because of their good works. <laughs> They're followers of God because of their faith and their trust. Even when their faith becomes shaky. <laughs> For we are God's workmanship, Ephesians continues to say, we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared for us ahead of time to do. So what does it mean for us to walk faithfully before God? Well, it means, first of all, we must have a relationship with God. If you don't have one, I'd love to talk with you afterwards. Secondly, it means daily walking. Daily walking. Daily trusting God for all we need. This is the challenge of life, right? I talked about with parenting uh, earlier when we were dedicating Brooks. That daily walk of, okay, here we go, another day. Here we go, we're going to the work. We're, we're working faithfully, even though it may be a difficult job, even though it may be stressful. We're, we're, we're staying home and we're homeschooling our kids and we didn't thought we would. We, we didn't think we would because everything shut down. What does it mean to daily walk? It looks different for each one of us, but to walk faithfully before God means, God, I'm going to trust you today with what I have today, because if we worry about tomorrow too much, we're just in a heap of trouble. <laughs> uh, Matthew says in his gospel, he says, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough worries of its own. Worry about today. Actually, he says, don't worry about today. He says, trust me with today. Don't be anxious about today. Trust God for what we need today. That's one way that we walk faithfully before God. Number three, uh, we prayerfully bring our pain, our hurt, and our brokenness to God. Prayerfully, we bring our pain and hurt and brokenness to God. This has been a hard season for many people in our community, in our world. Economic loss, personal loss, relational loss, frustration over a whole manner of things. Even death, whether, whether it be the taking of one's own life, which has happened twice in our community in the last several weeks, whether it be the loss of a loved one to an illness, whether it be the loss of just an, uh, one, someone in our life who is aging. My, my grandma passed away a couple weeks ago. She was 96. She knew the Lord. We blessed the Lord. But it's still loss. This year has been struggle and loss for many what does it mean to walk faithfully before God? We take our hurt, we take our pain, we take our brokenness to God. In fact, God says, come to me. All you who are weary and you are heavy laden, let me give you rest. Come to me, trust me, walk with me. Let my word guide you. May my Holy Spirit refresh you and empower you with grace. I don't know about you, but I need God's grace in my life. I need it because in and of my own self, I'm woefully insufficient for life. As we conclude today, I want you to think about this just for a moment. What does it mean for me personally to walk faithfully before God today? To walk with God? To experience that life that God desires me to have? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for how you have gone before us, how you have sent your son, your only son, the one whom you love, Jesus, our Messiah, to bring us back in relationship with you, 
And God, we come from a whole history this week of frustrations and loss and hurt and pain and brokenness. And in the midst of this, God, you are with us. You are with us. Thank you, God, that you came to this earth, Emmanuel, which means God with us to understand. You fully understand our human predicament, God. And yet you have made a way for us to walk faithfully with you, to walk daily with you. God, in the, in the areas of our life in which we just struggle to trust, God, give us grace. In the areas of our life where we say, God, we don't know what you're doing, help us to do what we know from your word is right and true. And to leave the big picture in your capable hands. Pray for any who are hurting and broken today. God, as they come to you, meet them with incredible grace upon grace. Meet them this morning with everything they need to love you and to love those around them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.